Hey guys, what's up? It's Greg. It's another episode of Flick City, Flick City episode 66. And this is, I'm actually recording it from my small room in the valley, in the San Fernando Valley. It was a great week. It was a great week for movies, just a great week for doing interviews because each of these people spotlighted for this specific installment. These were all interviewees that I really had a good time chatting with for a respective 10 to 15 minutes each. So this is a, I guess, it's a pretty jam-packed episode for a Flick City one. So you're going to get three interviews. And what I'm going to do for this one is for each, for each interview, I will just have an intro for each, for each movie covered. Okay. So the movies you're going to get this week are Summering and that I have an interview with director James Ponsold. You might know James Ponsold from the films, The End of the Tour. He directed that. He directed The Spectacular Now as well as The Circle and his latest film, Summering. It's going to get a a whole wide range of reactions, but I really, really love this movie. I took it to heart. We'll get to that in a second. The second interview will be for Rogue Agents, not Rogue Agents, Rogue Agent, the directors from that. They are Declan Lawn and Adam Patterson. These are former, basically they cut their teeth on investigative journalism and documentaries, and they use that fact-based reportage to actually get into fictional or narrative cinema. So it's weird because that's not weird. It's really cool how, at least for me, I, I'm really interested in how journal, journalists can actually take their background in reporting and covering subjects and writing stories and all that stuff on that level, how they can actually become artists within this whole narrative fiction vis-a-vis cinema. How does that translate on the screen? For the purposes of Rogue Agent, it translates really, really well. We'll get to that. It during the um, during the introduction for that segment with again co-directors collaborators Declan Lawn and Adam Patterson. Last but definitely not least is Wife Like, a movie that is that stars Jonathan Rhys Meyers and Elena Campuras. Uh, yeah, total breath of fresh air. Really enjoyed speaking with her. She was actually in Greece, might be in Greece as of this recording. Um, basically. She's in production for My Big Fat Greek Wedding. She is ultimately, even though Jonathan Rhys-Meyers, we, we all know him from Velvet Goldmine, one of the MI films, just a really stellar career. She ultimately, in my opinion, Elena Camporis is the main character for Wife Like, and I'll get to that as far as the once that interview gets around. That will be the last interview for Flick City. So this is a very small intro and I'm going to get right into um, summering in a second. So after summering, then you're going to get Rogue Agent and then you're going to get, you're going to end with Wife Like. All three of these films are in theaters. Summering is only in theaters on August 12th. Okay. But Rogue Agent, though in theaters, you can actually stream it on AMC Plus, that service as well. And for Wife Like, if you want, you can uh, purchase it on digital, I believe. Yeah, it's also available on digital as well as in theaters on Friday. Okay, so now let's start off with Summering. And Summering, it centers on, oh, it, it sounds like a female version of Stand By Me. And the reason why it sounds like a female version of Stand By Me is it, it centers on four, like 11 or 12 year old girls. Okay, they're all best friends. They're spending a, a very important summer before each of them go with their Possibly their separate ways to middle school. So I don't even know if they're 11 or 12, around that age, okay? And they, what happens is during one of these excursions to their local, I guess, outdoorsy areas in their neighborhood, they find a dead body. So the easy comparison would be to say this is another, a female version, a young girl version of Stand By Me. You wouldn't be wrong. It's a coming of age tale in a way, but the actual tone, the atmosphere, the storytelling is completely not Rob Reiner or Stephen King influence. It's influenced by really interesting storytelling from James Ponsold. I mentioned this, one of my favorite directors. Actually, I can't even say he's one of my favorite directors, but he, he made one of my all-time favorite films. And the reason why I can't mention Yasujiro Ozu, Japanese filmmaker Yasujiro Ozu, is not one of my favorite filmmakers because I haven't seen all of his films. I've only seen maybe two or three of them. He has a bunch of films that I have yet to see. That said... I mentioned during the interview this movie called Late Spring, and that's a movie about the intimate, the intricate and intimate, not 
in a gross way, but intimate, close-knit relationship between a daughter and her father. That is the movie Late Spring. I, I mentioned that during the interview with James Ponsold. The reason why I'm mentioning Late Spring is the the nuances, the use of music and score and atmosphere was absolutely beautiful and sublime in Late Spring. And there's a, a very intimate yet also, uh, not, not esoteric, but just a very, it's... It's a very interesting atmosphere that Late Spring builds towards. And I, I was thinking about that movie when I was thinking of James Ponsold's summary. There's the, the dialogue in this movie is spoken in a way that I would assume 11 or 12 year old girls would speak. Some cinephiles may say, Oh my gosh, this, this dialogue is clunky. It doesn't work, but it absolutely worked for me. Everything about this movie, the way James Ponsold actually frames the narrative without Without the quick cuts, without pandering to the audience, I really loved how this was a very esoteric and intimate and and sentimental and wistful without being too saccharine kind of tale. And it's heartbreaking in many moments as well. So I remember, you know, I hope all of us or all of you guys listening right now remember when you were 12 or when you were going into seventh seventh grade and maybe the first six grades you were close to your friends and i remember made me remember about that very pivotal time in my life when i went to shamanad college prep and all of my friends went to hail i had to it was a nightmare experience because i had to make new friends it's a moment that even at 50 i still remember vividly and you might have those kind of emotions when you see summering. Even if you don't love it as much as I do, it is, it should bring out some emotions regarding your, um, your thoughts of your own adolescence. Okay. So yeah, James Ponsold, if you, if you've appreciated the end of the tour circle and the spectacular now, wow, I love that movie so much. Yeah. You're going to really appreciate summering and it's, and the, it's rhythms. Okay. So you know what? Coming of age stories. I love stand by me. That's like a, for me, that's a very uh, popular song. It's like music wise, it's a popular pop song and there's nothing wrong with that. Love it. And even though Taylor Swift, her song seven is a prominent, is prominently displayed in this movie. This movie to me, summering is not a commercially driven pop song. It is more of a really cool, I don't know if I'm selling this correctly, but it's just a really cool jazz piece, you know, by a really inspired ensemble. And I mean this in the best way. It's a very specialized kind of film. And and hopefully there will be a lot of people who will take Summering, this coming of age tale, to heart. Okay, so tell me what you think of Summering as well, if you see it in theaters. And again, the James Ponsold interview is coming up in a few seconds, and I will do my rogue agent and wife-like intros, my brief intros, once those interviews come up again. Summering in theaters, on only in theaters, Friday, August 12th. And oh, check out this interview because there, along with the mention of Yasujiro Ozu, there is a great mention of Charles Burnett, the director of Killer of Sheep. My goodness. I still haven't seen what the, um, the other movie that Burnett did, uh, uh, To Sleep in Ang, To Sleep with Anger. That's a movie that I have to, he's done more movies than that, but that's his most popular film. But the works of Charles Burnett is also discussed towards the end of this interview. Enjoy my interview here with James Ponsold. Somebody's family. Exactly. I'm not saying we do nothing. We make a pact. Come back tomorrow morning, do the law and order thing, try and find out who he was. If we can't bring it out by Sunday, we tell our moms. But not before then. I mean, obviously. Assuming you're all open to consulting the spirit world. I'm not into any of it. Come on. This is our last weekend before middle school. And before you know it, it'll be Monday, first period. She's right. My mom won't let me watch all those shows you're talking about because she says it's always about men killing girls and other men saving girls or finding the dead girls they could have saved. But this is on us. This is our body. How are you, James? Pleasure um, to meet you. Oh, nice to meet you too. Thank you. You know, so I've been just uh, creeping out some of your your interviews on YouTube and I, I've noticed immediately that you're a huge cinephile and Right off the right off the jump, as a child, is your is your direct love for movies and personal filmmaking? You know, as watching these kind of movies, I think you mentioned uh, *Spare the Beehive* and all the, all that stuff. Is this personal approach a direct uh, influence on why 
you wanted to become a filmmaker and your aesthetic to this, even to this day as a filmmaker as well? Oh, that's a great question. Thank you. Um, yes. Um, yes. I think my love, I mean, I I grew up in movie theaters. Um, I mean, they felt like churches to to me. Um, you know, I mean, my early, very early memories, um, are of going to the movies, um, with my parents and then my parents were big cinephiles and sort of, um, had films that they would, um, sort of that we would watch together. Um, and then later I'd work in a movie, I worked in a movie theater and I mean, and sort of parallel with that was, um, my my mother wrote short stories and my grandfather was an artist and um, how he made his living was by painting book covers for people like Agatha Christie and Shirley Jackson. And he would also paint movie posters. Um, um, something that I didn't realize at the time, it wasn't until later that I found um, posters that he had done of a lot of like American films. Um, he would do the posters when they would go overseas and play in say France. Like I have a French version of the deliverance poster and there's sort of Papillon escape from Alcatraz and things like that. Um, so yeah, I mean, I just, people who are creating things and telling stories were around me. And, um, so yes, it was in, in my blood, I guess, from early on. You know, I, I, I really love summering and I, I, I want to be transparent. It's getting some different reviews. Some people really, really take it hard like me and some people have different takes on it. And I, I have a feeling this is a movie that to me is very layered and it, it requires multiple viewings. Can you just talk about your creative choice in making, you could have made, you're talented enough to make a commercially driven coming of age story about girls, but you, young girls, but you wanted to do something just more transcendent. Um, was that an easy choice as far as not pandering to a populist view on, on a, on a narrative, I guess? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think, um, I think as audience members, um, you know, I think we need to experience multiple subjectivities, you know, um, to understand the way structural violence um, sort of is transmitted through society, which is a very heady way of talking about what the film is about. You know, um, it's it's about four friends. Um, they're at that specific moment, sort of pre-adolescence, um, when, you know, kids exist emotionally, um, you know, on, on a and mentally on a, on a spectrum as far as the personal development. But I think some kids at that age, um, you know, still can present as quite innocent, use their imaginations to process trauma. Some kids are world wary and cynical already at that age, you know, and they, and then very soon there'll be teenagers who are sprinting towards adulthood. But this is very specifically set at a, at a moment in time um, when that shift hasn't quite yet happened. And it's, and it's also um, a story that, you know, is a, you know, um, I think informed by myself being a parent. Um, I have three kids and so much of the film, it is subjective to the um, young protagonist experience, but it is also about their conversation and about the conversations that happen between generations because their parents are characters as well. And there is that, I think that disconnect of parents wanting to understand their kids, wanting to give their kids the freedom of childhood. But of course we inevitably project our own um, anxieties and neuroses onto our own kids. Um, So all of that sort of were things that sort of informed um, the, the story. And then just lots and lots and lots and lots of conversations with all the people in, in my life. My wife works at a middle school, high school. So it's like every year there's a new group of 11 and 12 year olds. My co-writer, Ben Percy, and I have been working together. We started working together a long time ago um, when I adapted a short story of his about young men and violence. Um, like this was over 15 years ago, um, a story called Refresh, Refresh that was turned into a graphic novel. Um, and he has children and children the age of these characters. So it's really just a part of our lives. And and that, that sort of um, back and forth that I kind of alluded to of kids presenting as innocent at times and sometimes being so wildly, gut-wrenchingly, um, not innocent and just um, cynical and um, informed by how traumatic the world can be. Um, and, and parents, you know, um, having to look their kids in the eye, especially, you know, what it's been in the past couple of years where, you know, in my case, I have young kids who are afraid for me and my wife to leave the house because um, they thought that if we breathe bad air, we might die, which sounds like the stuff of science fiction, but that is the weird reality that we all find ourselves in now. You mentioned uh, in one of your interviews your love for uh, Yasujiro Ozu, and a lot of people say he's a Ozu's a very um, 
very subtle filmmaker, but I just rewatched Late Spring, one of my all-time favorite films, and he uses a lot of score and music to to his stuff. Yeah. And I just want you to uh, wondering for for summering, what was the the balance as far as using? I really loved how you used your score, but what is that creative balance for you to to make sure it's not overdone, but it's also a character in the story? What kind of um, decisions go in, go inside your brain regarding that? Yeah. Um, um, and I'll also just say, as a, yes, as a huge Ozu fan, I mean, it's interesting also in so many of his films, like if you rewatch Good Morning, it's interesting just with the sound design of just the sound of farts, of boys being obsessed with the sound of farts is part of <laughs> what informs the, the audio experience of that, of that film. And of course, like young people and technology actually is sort of um, in a gentle way, part of his stories. Um, but yeah, with Summering, um, you know, one of my really big collaborations, one of my biggest is with um, Sophie, Sophia Hulquist, who records as Drum and Lace. Um, she's a remarkable um, composer. And it was important for me, you know, for whether it was with the cinematography and my collaboration with Greta Zazula and the way that we were filming um, our actors or the way that the score worked in the film, that it sounds subjective to the experience of these um, of these young people, you know, that it feel like that it was the sound of their emotional inner life, lives and their psyche, which inevitably would be informed by music that they were listening to on Spotify <laughs> or on YouTube, um, which is to say I knew early on that I wanted score that was electronic and maybe somewhat ele- experimental electronic married with the human voice, like with female choral, um, with a female choral component. Um, and that's very general, but I, that was something that felt appropriate. And when I was introduced to Sophie, uh, and I was just a huge fan of, of work that she'd done and, um, specifically on a show called Dickinson. And, um, and she's an amazing sort of musician in her own right, aside from the score that she does. She just immediately, um, instead of just us spotting the film, a lot of the conversations were her talking about her own childhood when she was um, these girls age and about her relationship to her child now as a mother. And so many of the themes in the story that um, were already internal to her and just um, felt like we very much had a similar view of how to, how to externalize the emotional inner lives of the protagonists. I'm going to read a couple of lines here. It says here, um, Passed down like folk songs, our love lasts so long. <laughs> so a couple, couple of questions. Your employment of that Taylor Swift track, Seven, and how it relates to your narrative. And I think ultimately is the most important part regarding, even if you're 12, that stays in your psyche, even at our age these days, the most important part, whether or not they're your friends today or the next summer, it's the love and the support that you have for that summer that maybe solidifies so much yourself throughout those years. So those two questions. Yeah. Beautiful. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, at, at that age at 11 or 12, um, you know, your friendships, especially I think um, female friendships can be articulated. The value of a friendship, the value of your friends is something that, that these characters are able to talk about it probably with better articulation than young boys can um, who might talk about sports or music or movies or that third thing. Um, but that fear of losing your best friend at that age can, is so front of mind. And in some cases it may be more front of mind than death, um, which can feel abstract, not necessarily it depends on a personal experience, but can be very real. It can feel like a death and, you know, the change of going to a new school of not having your friend around, you can feel like, like a type of death. And yeah, the, Taylor Swift song. I mean, I, I listened to it a lot, um, during, uh, with my, with my family, with my children, um, during, during the first year of quarantine, I mean, continued to, and that song, um, I find so moving and beautiful and haunting and it feels, it is a folk song, um, that feels, um, you know, it's a story about childhood but it's about a memory of childhood and maybe a dream of childhood and maybe a nightmare of childhood, which is sort of a way that I wanted this film to, to feel. And it is about the relationships that you develop at that age that it just get deep in your bones, in your blood and stay with you for the rest of your life. Um, and even, even as perhaps your perception of what that relationship was and what that person you were in a relationship with, in a friendship with might change when you get older and realize that you were having very, very different experiences perhaps in your home life. A couple more questions is, uh, I think it was, I, f- I forgot, it might've been my back pages where I think Dylan says, um, 
I was so much older than I'm younger than that now. Mm-hmm. So regarding your film summary, did you ever wonder why you're crafting this movie? Where maybe not you personally, but I'm watching your movie and I'm thinking, where did I lose all my sense of imagination? Most important, important importantly, guts. <laughs> you know, and um, that's I think another thing that works through. And I think a lot of the parents, the mothers, they they're wondering about that as well. Is that one of the themes of of summering? And I, th- I think it's really wonderful how you approached it too. So thank you. I mean, I, I think it is a, like a beautiful thing about childhood is that we, when we're kids, we all have the ability to use imagination as a tool to do anything, but certainly to process trauma, whether it's, you know, personal, structural, you know, whatever it is, a a parent's marriage falling apart, the death of a loved one, things like that. Imagination becomes a way, a way that we can make sense of things and make, make order out of things that feel totally randomized and and disorderly. And I think um, as we get older, yeah, many, many people hold on to that, to that imagination. A lot of us, lose it. Um, I think a lot of people, a lot of people's, a lot of the artists that I admire, I think their brilliance is that they can tap into the imagination of childhood. Like it's exact, that's exactly the thing that they have. Um, so I, I think that, that is, um, that specific moment when it is still a ready tool, um, imagination, but maybe lost soon because, we all know what <laughs> seventh and eighth grade are like when you get to middle school, it becomes, um, it can feel like a horror film, you know, a horror film of personal traumas, you know, of, of losing the people that you love and, and the world feeling like it's turned upside down on you. And before I let you go, very quick, quick, uh, quick double question. Uh, are you still working? What are you working on right now? Are you still doing um, Wild City? And the second part of it is very quickly right off the top of your head. Can you name one of your all time favorite films? I know for you, it's very hard. And what is it about this specific film that, that resonates with you? And that's it. I'm going to shut up. So. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Um, what I'm working on right now, um, I am finishing a new television series actually for, um, for Apple. It's called shrinking. Um, and it is about therapists, <laughs> um, about psychiatrists. Um, and it's with, uh, um, Harrison Ford and Jessica Williams and Jason Siegel and a really great cast. Um, it's from the folks that made Ted Lasso. Um, it's going to be a great show. Um, and I've really loved working on it and favorite films. There's so many I'm mentally, um, so, yeah. killer of sheep by Charles Burnett, um, is one that, um, I saw in college. I was later fortunate enough to be able to interview Charles when milestone, um, re-released it, I think in 2006 and which was like very much for me, like, like the end of that movie, that Kurosami movie close up, it was like meeting a personal God just like, Oh my God. Um, but that's a movie that, um, about families, about parents and children. That's always, it always has a deep ability to just um, bring me to my knees and to move me and um, inspire me and make me feel hope and love. I just wonder why Burnett didn't get like that big, huge Hollywood deal, or is that a, a wrong-headed way to think about it? Because his career is so such a landmark career. I mean, Killer of Sheep's amazing, but is it just because it's? I, I don't know. I don't know how to even form that into a question. But he's amazing. What was it like interviewing him? Was it amazing? remarkable and you know he made many other great films to sleep with anger is probably the most with Danny Glover probably the most well-known other film of his um you know I I think I think you like Ozu um you know I I think uh, like I Ozu and Charles Burnett are two filmmakers that I think of as being very kindred as people that are interested in family dynamics and the um you know, and, and, and nuance portraits of um, structural issues related to class and race and gender um, and all, all of those things that don't fit easy compartmental, compartmentalization that are not easily marketable <laughs> um, um, because they are as complicated as families and people are. Um, it's why his films are so rich um, and why they, I believe, will endure, um, you know, long past any of us are on this earth. Um, I think people will still be watching his films. James, thank you so much for your time. I really love summering and, and uh, looking forward to interviewing you again and talk more Ozu stuff. So, Oh, I look forward to it. Thank you so much. And take care. Thank <laughs> you. Okay. Again, so for, for Rogue Agent, I'm interviewing Declan Lawn and also Adam Patterson. They're the co-directors and co-writers of this movie. They co-wrote this film with Michael Bronner. And the film is headlined by Gemma Arterton. She plays this woman named Alice Archer, very responsible woman, corporate exec. She has she's a very responsible, career driven woman, and she meets this guy named Robert Freegard, who works within the vicinity. He's selling luxury cars. Robert Freegard is played by James Norton, and this movie is based on a true story. Robert Freegard is a 
person who actually fooled various people that he was an MI5 agent and he would try to lure them into his web of, I guess, espionage and and whatnot and work. He was he would try to recruit them as a fake MI5 agent. And what would happen is a lot of these people would fall for that trap because Freeguard is a very charismatic person. And yeah, and what would happen is they would go in, go into hiding, they would sacrifice and leave contact from their own family. And it was a big, big, pretty much a big con game that Freeguard was operating. Obviously, ultimately, he would end up taking a lot of their money and just ruining their lives in the process. And one of the, these women he ruins, or not ruins, or he actually impacts in a negative way, is Alice Archer, again, played by Gemma Archerton. Sorry for that buzz. The phone was right next to the microphone. So yeah, Rogue Agent really works, really worked for me because the, just because of the performances of Gemma Archerton and James Norton, they're both very, very good actors. And it's told, this movie's told like a thriller. Not because it's a true story and these guys are former investigative journalists and documentarians and whatnot. It's not told in a flashy Brian De Palma-esque thriller, but thriller in the sense that this movie is fast-paced enough or actually well-paced enough, that is, that's a proper word, well-paced enough, to not make you get bored with the certain details. And actually, this movie is far from boring whatsoever because Free Guard, you have no idea, even though you may know his story before starting this movie, you have no idea where the story is going to go next. And if Alice Archer or any of the other people in this, in this story, in this true story will, will come away with a sense of closure regarding the capture of Freeguard. So that is the interview I have right now with rogue agent filmmakers Declan Lawn and Adam Patterson. Enjoy. And also there will be a trailer before the interviews with these filmmakers. Really cool guys too. And, you know, even with all this reporting and rep- reportage stuff, they, they both have a great sense of humor. They're very good friends and collaborators. And that is evident within this movie. Also stay, stay tuned for the end of this interview because I asked them a question that I was really interested in, in that, you know, when, when you're reporting a story and when you're doing some kind of story as a journalist, how in the, how in the world are you able to actually do justice and turn out a good story if you get maybe emotionally involved with the subject you're interviewing or, or you're covering? How does one separate that and effectively do their job and turn over an, a, a story that people will find not just arresting, but informative, value added, et cetera, et cetera. So that is my interview and check it out. Tell me what you think of Rogue Agent. If you see it in theaters, August 12th, as well as the option of having it on streaming on AMC+. You'll probably never hear this message. It's important that you know that you haven't broken me. There's a trick that spies use. If you want to make an instant connection with someone, look into their eyes just long enough to register their eye color. Hi. He said it works every time. In case you want to buy a car or have dinner. My real name is Robert Freegard. I am an officer in the British Security Services, MI5. Check with our colleagues in security services. He's not one of theirs. Robert Freeguard. The allegation was for stalking and harassment of a young woman. Sophie. Where are we? One last mission. Robert Freeguard has kidnapped my daughter. Stay in this postcode. Someone will find you here and take you to the program. Do you believe in God and the devil? Some people have been put on this earth to be the agents of one or the other. Robert Freeguard is such an agent. And he's not the Lord's. I need you to help me find him. We work together. We have just one shot at this. So go on then. What are you hiding? He never, ever stops. The number you have dialed has not been recognized. Please check and dial again. We need to find him. Thank you guys for the time. Really enjoyed Rogue Agent uh, first off. Thank you, Greg. Thank you. Yeah, you know, uh, directing 
co-directing a narrative feature, I'm assuming from the outside looking in, is hard in and of itself. But with Rogue Agent, it seems that there's there's a little, a little bit of journalism or a lot of journalism and documentarian kind of aesthetic. Can both of you just kind of pretty much talk about just all of the work you guys put in, not just for it as a narrative, but just I'm assuming there's just a pile of research that seems formidable. Was it formidable uh, to both of you as far as getting getting in the weeds? Yeah, you can start that. Okay. Um, so we... Sorry. So yeah, Greg. So we um we came to the project. The project had been trundling on for a few years. So Michael Bronner, uh, who was originally an investigative journalist like us, did the original research in the mid two thousands after the court case. Met a lot of the victims, uh, people he's still in touch with, and wrote an amazing journalism article that was then optioned. Um, and then he wrote a script. Um, and then Declan and I were taken on to do a rewrite and then to direct, right? So we met one of the producers, Kitty Kleski, about two years ago now, just before lockdown. And she sat down and she told us this story about Freeguard. And bearing in mind, we'd spent a decade investigating the world. This was the craziest story we'd ever heard. We were just like blown away. We just couldn't believe. We were just couldn't believe it happened. We were instantly, you know, intrigued by the hows, the whys, the, the people that fell for him, all that sort of stuff. And we realized very quickly, it's an amazing story. It's a character film, and we love characters. It's the way we write. Um, I also personally, for me, had a bit of an affiliation. I, I dated a girl who had kind of sociopathic tendencies. She was a sociopathic liar. She'd spun a whole world of lies around her life that I totally bought into when I was an investigative journalist. And so there was some relatability there. And I think the more that I talked to Declan about that, the more we realized that there's a lot of relatability in the film. And one of the takeaways we want people to have is that this could really happen to anyone, you know. So that's why we were initially intrigued about it. But, you know, to get back to what you're saying, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of ethical kind of requirements when you take on a story like this. It's based on real people. Um, so even though, you know, our biggest task was to take all of Michael's wonderful work and somehow streamlined into two hours of entertaining narrative, genre-based filmmaking. And, you know, we realized that we had to strip out a lot of characters, a lot of victims. So we had to take away a lot of bits of the truth. But what we fought for with the help of Michael and the victims was to retain the essence of what happened so that, that hopefully now, and some of them have seen it and said to us, yes, it didn't, some of these bits didn't exactly happen like this, but it, that's how I felt. And that's how it felt at the time. And I think you've done a good job. So, yeah, but it's a big process when you undertake these real stories, for sure. Yeah. You know, when both of you are trying to really just get to the truth of a story, whether it's directing or co-writing, what happens when uh, both of you have different ways of looking at the world, even though you guys are partners and collaborators? What happens when it meets a crossroad and how does one compromise when each person is um, almost fixed in their take on on the matter. How does how do are you guys able to? You mentioned streamline that. How are you how are you able to actually work through that and come out with a better, I guess, uh, result from said you know positions? Well, well Declan so just tells, tells me. Declan just tells me to be quiet and ask me to leave the room. <laughs> does that work, Declan? I have him, have him leave the room. Is it better? We have an arm wrestle and whoever wins. <laughs> so basically, Greg, um, Adam and I have been working together on, on documentaries for a long time. We, we first met in 2009 on, a, on an investigative television show called BBC Panorama. And so uh, we know each other very well and we know each other's outlooks very well, right? But of course, there are, there are times when we have different views on things we've we've yet to come across a time where we weren't able to talk it out and compromise but 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 even more than that i find that adam's suggestions make mine better and i think hopefully he thinks vice versa so television and film are as you know intensely collaborative things it's not like writing a novel or a poem where it is your singular vision so, so it starts with Adam and I collaborating, and then it involves collaborating with James and, and Gemma and the producers and Larry, our wonderful cinematographer. And, and I think that our time in documentaries makes us less precious about imposing, yeah. imposing a vision on, on other people. I think we're very content to 
totally. Like, yeah. Yeah, 100%, man, we spent many, many, many years in documentaries going in with the first cut of a doc and being completely ripped apart by producers. So we are totally used to taking notes. And, you know, when you're a young documentarian or a young creative, you fight back a lot. And then at some point, you, if you're smart, you realize that actually smart people make your work better. So we've taken that ethos into dramatic storytelling, of course. <clears throat> but also Declan and I have a very, very similar view of the world, Greg. Like we grew up in Northern Ireland towards the end of the conflict here, you know, in a place that, you know, had a lot of kind of terrible things happening. But, you know, it taught us a lot about how the world works. It taught us a lot about resilience, about optimism. And I think we, we see the world in a very similar way. So if if I'm doing, like, say I'm speaking, if I'm doing something on set and Declan comes up to me, I'll know there's a reason he's doing that because he never just does it just just for the sake of it. So I'll know even if I don't totally agree, oh, maybe I should listen to the big man this time and vice versa. You know, it, it kind of goes back and forth like that. So we're, we always need each other. Like we we do, I've always made each other's work better from starting to write TV scripts now to directing. Definitely, we, we kind of feed off each other's energy. Speaking of energy, I, I'm sure, what's the challenge in, I, I'm watching this movie and I'm just so frustrated. It's really great storytelling, but what's the challenge of, in a, in a, I mean this in the best way. This is almost, it almost feels like a public service announcement to, to people. Just say, just really learn who to trust and whatnot. But what's it like actually crafting this narrative where you know a lot, the people who are watching it are, are going to be so frustrated by the events that are occurring? Or, or maybe that's the job because to actually, to actually help us and be warned about the, that human condition, you know? So. Yeah, I think there's a level in which it, it is a warning, you know, as Adam says, he, you know, he went through something similar, and but but I think whilst Freeguard is an outlier, um, and what he did and got away with is very accentuated. I think the message of it really is that is that fantasists and illusionists exist all around us. Some of them are in positions of of power in this world, um, and really, the story is Alice's story. It's about we have to be able to look ourselves honestly in the mirror. That's what she does. Um, you know, ultimately, she looks at herself in the mirror and she says, who really am I? What do I want? Uh, and, and so I guess if the film has a message, it's that like, it's our own individual responsibility to be honest with ourselves, which, which is eventually what happens to Alice. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, I'm really excited about after watching this, I, I looked at the, your resume and I'm really excited. I think it's maybe next month on Peacock, The Undeclared War. Have you guys been working on this? And I, I, I saw a clip and I'm really heavily invested into uh, checking this out. How has that journey been for you from Rogue Agent to, I guess, uh, maybe is it a limited or series work? It must be really uh, so intensive for both of you. Yeah. So. Series, so, so we actually did our work on The Undeclared War before we made uh, Rogue Agent Um and we were brought onto that by a great, uh, a great writer director called Peter Kuzminski. Uh, we worked on two episodes of the Undeclared War, and it was, it was an incredible education in show running and filmmaking because he is uh, incredibly invested in getting things right. He he's also, funnily enough, a former current affairs investigative journalist who moved into drama. Um, but working with Peter taught us so much about treading that narrow path between fact and research and making entertaining fiction out of it. It was, yeah, I, basically it was like a, it was like a university education in, in filmmaking and writing. Yeah. How about you, Adam? Was that, was it an education for you as well? Just this whole process and then going right into a rogue agent as well. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, like, so we've been, we, we had a show out in the BBC uh, a couple of years ago called The Salisbury Poisonings. That was our first, essentially our first dramatic child that was born into the world. We wrote that. We, di- we didn't direct it. So that was a, that was a limited three-parter for the BBC um, that then went on AMC uh, in the States. Um, and that was obviously a massive step up from doing documentaries. Like That was a huge education for us. Um, and then we did our short film. Um, which was a dark comedy look on punishment attacks, which is a very severe issue in Belfast. <clears throat> that did very well. Like it won an Irish TV Academy Award and different things like that, a few big festivals. And that's what gave us the chance uh, to, you know, to pitch for Rogue Agent. And then around that time, we were also working on some other TV projects, one of which was Peter's 
the undeclared war. And like that was another, as Declan says, a great education because uh, he ran a writer's room and he just arrived with like four years of meticulous research about GCHQ and which is the, um, uh, you know, the intelligence, uh, the cyber intelligence uh, government uh, entity in the UK. And like he just came with like, we spent the, f- the first four days out of five just talking about character and we were like, wow, this is how you do it. You don't worry too much about the story. It'll always fall in. You build your characters out. And he just he just comes from the same place of character writing that we do. So it was a great education for us, as Declan said. And definitely experiences like that, of course, they help you then when you're going on to do your first feature as well. well final couple of questions. Just um, regarding investigative journalism and working on documentaries, is there a discipline and focus that you guys both pretty much carved out from those practices that make made directing out? rogue agent for you pretty much a you know a seamless process and and what you guys do right now as as a team and and your in your various works that having that foundation i guess yeah definitely i mean we made a lot of a lot of documentaries dozens of them um and and whilst stepping onto the set on the first morning on on rogue agent with with a large crew to make a drama was uh, obviously in some senses intimidating it was by no means the worst or scariest situation we'd ever been in um you know we we had worked in very difficult places in the world we had been under extreme pressure in some of the stories we told before so there is there is an element in which that um though that decade certainly helped us move into into drama you know because i guess we've been through the middle on a few things and together as well yeah, yeah. We formed a bond of trust in some difficult situations, but and I guess we brought that trust and that yeah that friend into it's this. Also, the other thing it gives you, Deck, is confidence, right? So we spent many years in, in in the trenches of the world investigating how people's lives work. So when it comes to even though our directing directing actor experience is limited, like one short film before this. Like we've met a lot of people in the world in very stressful situations. We know how people react to things. We know how families react when terrible things happen. And I think a lot of that really helps when you're working on character and like working with James and talking them through the psychology of someone. Yeah. Like, you know, I think all of that feeds into directing. So like, even though it is a different world, um, we're very well versed in how the world works. And I think when it comes to representing the world then in a dramatic sense, it's given us a bit of a kind of tool toolkit for that, I guess, you know, but of course there was so much to learn. Like, you know, it, yeah, there was a lot to do. Like, I think we had 20, 26, 27 locations in 29 days. So like that was a suicidal um, uh, undertaking. So like there's things you may not do that the same way again, but you know, you learn a lot on your first, your first film for sure. And my final question is, and maybe it's the the quick answer, the easy answer is just to get on with it. But when you're in difficult situations or you're interviewing and researching people, real people, what's the challenge of actually turning over that story? Because you, I'm sure you're human beings, you get personally invested in the, the story, the people you work with, the people you interview. But then after all that emotions and, and life that hits you, you have to sit down and write something that yeah. that yeah that means something so what's the challenge in that it just it feels very intimidating for me as someone who's not an expert like you guys are well i would say i'm gonna i'll pass this over to you deck the first thing i would say is that you need to have you need to always retain a sense of respect for the person's story that you take so when you sit down and someone tells you their story right they're often giving you the most vulnerable things in their life something they may not even tell their family members so you're a custodian of that vulnerability that they've given you, right? And it's very difficult. We find it frustrating in journalism. Deck will speak to this too, because we felt we could never do those things proper justice because we just, you know, we just didn't have the free creative framework in journalism. And one of the reasons we moved into drama was to tell character stories. And that's why we think we can tell it here. So that's why it is interesting. So you take that testimony from people and then, you know, you sit down and we all sit together and think, how can we represent this fairly? and still make it work within the characters that we can put in this time frame and the narrative that we're shaping. And it's a long process. It's a long process. And you're often in constant contact with the people you've interviewed to make sure that they're happy and to make sure it's all okay. So it's it's a difficult undertaking. Deck? Yeah, no, look, I, I would just echo exactly what you said. I mean, we, we learned it a long time ago in documentaries, but as, as soon as you put someone on screen, 
a real person. You're the custodian of their character. And I think that it, it's the second most important thing to people, you know, behind their, their physical existence and their health is, is their character and their reputation. And yeah. you, you learn that very early on. And I think it's something we, we hopefully kind of carry through into drama where even, even when you have to sacrifice literal truth for dramatic, the dramatic essence of the story, that you hope that the people who experience the real thing will look at it and say, you, you know, you've captured the essence of what we went through. That's our, that's our hope for this film anyway, very, very much so. Thank you guys so much for your time. Really appreciated your film. Really loved it. Thank you, Greg. It was lovely, lovely to meet you. Lovely to talk to you, man. Thank you so much. You think those great questions as well, man? Those were really good questions. Thank you. And go easy on Adam because it's your the arm wrestling thing that scared me a bit. So <laughs> be careful. <laughs> thank you so much. And thank you, Stephen. Okay, my- Okay, so my last interview is actually one of my favorite interviews of all time. Totally a, a GOAT interview. This is GOAT as in greatest of all time. This is uh, my interview with Elena Camporis, and it's just based on the energy that she completely had throughout the inter- entire interview. It's only about like an 11, no, around a 12-minute interview, and she is a star of Wife Like. She plays an artificial human being, AI person, and she is her, her task as a non-human being is to serve the needs of her of her companion and that companion is played by Jonathan Rhys Myers and that person that Jonathan Rhys Myers' character his job is to actually make sure these I guess you could call them replicants these artificial human beings are pretty much lockstep and key with the order of the day with the government system that these beautiful artificial human beings can serve their respective masters in a very dutiful and proper way that is the premise of wife like I went in thinking this was going to be just a really fun cheesy sci-fi movie and I, I remembered liking Elena Camporis in previous movies, so I was excited to see what she did with this movie. She's great as the AI being, and she does a, the whole posture and the language very, 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 very convincing. But what was really cool about Wife Like is it's not, it's not that cheesy sci-fi movie that you're expecting. It, it actually deals in different. It swims in in a completely different water. It has a sheen of the guilty pleasure kind of movie with these beautiful women. And the whole premise of serving their respective a human, their, their male counterparts, that was, could have been exploitive in that way, but it wasn't because this movie really focuses in on the objectification of women, how sometimes, you know, just treating other people horribly is not the way to go, especially within a big, rigid, patriarchal government structure. Maybe I ascribed a little bit too much with Wife-like, but it, you, it is an enjoyable, entertaining feature. But I was really struck with the way that the characters' journeys, respective journeys in this movie shaped out. There are some people who treat these artificial human beings with respect and love, and they treat them as hopefully other human beings, but then there are other humans who actually want to put these these AI beings under their thumb and lord over them, which is not obviously not a very good thing. Hence the drama behind Wifelike. It's written and directed by James Bird. Very interesting film. Again, it hits theaters on on Friday, August twelfth, and it will be available as well on digital via Paramount Pictures. Okay. Now, Elena Camporis, the reason why she's a GOAT interview is she just was very, uh, just very energetic throughout the entire interview. She sang, she closed the interview singing, singing to me in Mandarin. She, by the way, she is fluent in Mandarin. And I believe I interviewed Bird earlier today and he said he, she's fluent in other languages. I should have asked her what other languages she's fluent in. She's also a very talented actor, really loved her in this movie and looking forward to seeing more of her work. But anyways, Enough said. Just listen to the interview. There's a lot of things that she she actually sings a Greek song uh, during the during the interview as well. Just a very bright and bubbly and in- intellectual person as well. So really love that interview. And again, couple that with the humor of the filmmakers from Rogue Agent and the cinema geek geekdom that I was able to talk with James Ponzolt in that really beautiful film summary. It was a really good week of covering movies. Hopefully, some of you will see. Wife like, or maybe rogue agent, or summering, or maybe all of them would be would love to hear what you guys think of all three of these films. Did they work for you or not? Thanks again for supporting me and Anderson, as well as Bruce Berkey and Eric Holmes on this here cinematics. I will see you guys next week shortly with some more interviews. Take care, guys. Thanks again. Bye. Oh, Later. Look at that. Uh, first Hi. off, I.
Oh, yes. Uh, first off, I really, really love this your performance in this movie. And it's a very layered performance. And it feels like a very courageous performance because it's uh, it seems to be a role that's really hard to tackle. How did you go about doing this? Because... You know, if it go if it goes one way, it could be caricature, but you made it really human while being artificial as well. It's a very fine line you're walking with this role. Oh my gosh! Well, very very smart question, Greg. Um, that is the question, isn't it? Because all the roles I have played, to be honest, in the past have all been human. So this is the first time I was like, okay, when you're playing roles, you're exploring the human experience, what it is to be a human, these universal themes and emotions, and you know, I'm Greek, so pathos, it's everything, right? But here, I'm in a situation. I'm playing a machine, but there's more than just mechanics at work with this story and the nuance and themes that are, as you said, like bubbling underneath. So what excited me was the challenge at play here, because yes, she starts out in a sense, Meredith is like leveling up through this discovery of emotion and finding singularity. And she never does make it to being a human, human-like, but that whole journey, that odyssey, there I go referencing again, I'm in Greece right now, so my, my Greek pride is like, no, no, level high. Um, but that whole journey was just so compelling to me and to have the opportunity to explore AI in a way that I think hasn't quite been explored before um, in this story and 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 her and the whole, the discoveries that she's making and, and also with being programmed a certain way and then getting deprogrammed because maybe she's getting too smart. Maybe she's finding out too much. I don't know if I'm allowed to give away spoilers, but I'm (laughs) going to keep a mystery. Uh, But you see, I I hope I'm making sense. It's like, it was much also like playing a character in a video game where it's like, you're, you're making it to the next level, next level to get to the boss, but like, Oh, you get back down to level one again. So she's, there was just so many, there was a lot of nuance, which I hope, it reflects in the performance and I hope you enjoyed the, the, the exploration, this take on AI companions of sorts. I also like that how wife like is a deceptively interesting and subtle narrative because you're thinking you're going in for the aesthetic pleasure of, wow, here's a, here's a guy. He finally, he gets a, a beautiful woman. She's AI, but really the movie is about the objectification of people and how people are under others' thumbs and just exploitation. I, can you just, I'm sure, is that that kind of deceptive layer that, that you- so yeah. spot on, Greg. I'm so glad that you caught that because um, very much so like, and um, with our creative team, you know, James Bird, Stephen Paul, we've had discussions about this. Um, about the fact that, yes, this is the whole thing is that even, and here I'm going back to Greek history, from the beginning of time, women have been programmed to sit and be pretty, entertain the men, be there for their pleasure and enjoyment, and that's it. Um, they've been objectified, and it the way that this movie look at, has this lens through magical realism and through the futuristic setting, I think it makes, it challenges the audience to think, have we really changed much from where we were back Yonder is as much really changed in the human psyche and, the, and society and societal norms and expectations. Um, because very much so, it's about the programming, the ownership of the women. Meredith starts out just to her, her main duty and, and obligation is to serve and please her husband, um, which much like in Greek history, the women were literally just expected to rear children and, and sing for men and not right to give a woman a pen and ink was like giving venom to a snake is literally what the philosopher said so i just think it's really interesting how in this uh story and i'm glad you caught it you know it starts from meredith an ai robot you know having her ownership completely dictated for her and by the end by the end of this journey this odyssey is she going to pick ego and identity over uh, the ownership that she's been forced into um And I think, again, you've got the fact that this relationship, there's a major age gap. You've got the women that are, you know, sexually objectified. These are all things that we were conscious of and we're making a statement about. There was a commentary about this, which is why it's in your face, because I think, again, with magical realism, it's a perfect icebreaker to address these uncomfortable but very real things. Um, So, yeah, I go on. I ramble, but I'm just excited that you caught that. Because it was very much intentional. You you mentioned Odyssey. I, I was I was just wondering about your own personal Odyssey the last five or six years. When you, I work with my close friends on my podcast, so it, it's a joy. But for you, with my big fat Greek wedding three, what is it like work? All, everyone is obviously working really hard and are very serious about the craft. But what is it like to go back and work with your family and your close friends? Uh, how giving is that? You know, in this environment for you, literally, Greg. 
I, as I told you, I'm a proud Greek girl. I love mythology. I love history. I love my roots so much. It has been a highlight. One of the one of the highlights of my life to be able to come back to a place that I come every summer. You know, I've grown up um, coming to Greece and seeing my family to get to work here and to connect with the crew that we had on this. I mean, it's always a unique experience, and you meet people from different walks of life, and it's so enriching. But to be in Greece, we shot all over Athens. We were even in the Athens airport. We were in Rafina port. We were in all the places. And then in Gergira, Corfu, uh, the beauty, it, it just, I, I'm, I'm still processing all of it. Processing, still robot mode, no. Uh, it, it really, um, it, it's surreal. I still haven't quite, you know, reckoned with it completely. I mean, I've been, I've made friends that will last a lifetime, family, and, you know, connecting with my roots, learning all the Greek songs. It's just been magical. And you know what? Greg, I don't know. Where are you right now? I'm in, I'm in Los Angeles or Calabasas, oh, that whole suburb. I'm going to take you with me. You are now with me, okay? okay. Check it out. This right That's here. What is that in the background? Oh, Beautiful city! Wow. It's the Acropolis. Oh yeah. Okay. Okay. Yes. My bad. My bad. I I got an F in history. So yes. My gosh. Beautiful. No, no. It's hard to see, but there you go. I hope you can can now make it out with the light adjusting. Yes. There you go. Beautiful. Beautiful. So literally to be in the terrain, to be soaking in the history, like to see that to be in the the thousand to be in the water and to just it's my soul is just at home here. So it's been a joy. And I, I don't want to leave. It's, it's, yeah, I, I love it so much. So it's been such a fun time. You know, speaking of joy, I, I really recognized you as an actor several years ago with the underrated film Summer Night. And I, even back then, I was just wondering where you get your love for life, you know, with all its, you know, travails and, and uh, tribulations, you just, you really embrace pe- And when you're on your IG, I see you, you just come up to strangers and you connect with them. Where does that come from? Is it how you were raised? Is it something that you learned throughout just working with diverse people in your industry? I don't know. We got to connect on Instagram now, Greg. I'm, <laughs> I'm getting back on the train. Okay. I'm, I'm very much in the moment here, but to, to answer your question, I don't know. I just, I love, I love learning. I never want to stop learning like a spongari, like a sponge. I want to just soak it all in. And uh, to me, like I said, meeting people is such an enriching thing and learning about different customs and beliefs. Like Celine Chinois said, I always quote her, um, you know, when you encounter different customs, beliefs, language, and 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 music, it is not only a gift for yourself, it's a gift for others, and it can unlock different things from your own being that you didn't even know were there. So, and it and it it in, it also informs my work, which is a lovely additional surprise. You know, when I when I hear, learn, I connect with people, hear different stories, learn music, learn language, and connect with different communities. It's uplifting, it's empowering, and I can also use it as inspiration for my work. And I don't know, it's, it's a gift on both ends. So I just never want to stop that. And, 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 I, and I love the fact that um, James, Stephen, they were so encouraging and supportive of my interests and passions. So when they found out, oh, the, uh, you know, Mandarin and the language speaking and singing, they were like, let's infuse it into the movie. I was like, that's so cool. Let's do it. And we got it. We had an idea, which if you, uh, if you know the scene, you know, where she are the settings, the default settings, and she's saying Mandarin, and then the singing, we were like, think about it. With your phone, you can set Siri to have an accent. You can set your keyboard to be different languages. Why wouldn't you be able to do that with an in-the-flesh AI robot who's like really advanced? So we, we kind of rolled with it. But again, I love to find ways where I can intersect my passion into the work and and how grateful and you know lucky I am to be working with creative people, um, part of this project that were supportive of that and, you know, excited by it so yeah final, uh, final question final uh two-part question first off right off the top of your head can you name one of your all-time favorite films and what is it about this film that speaks to you and the second part of that question is you know from your from your resume uh, can you recommend a film for film or project for us and our listeners to watch that you're really really proud of along with along with wife like so of course wife like yes, but yes. Wife, <laughs> wife, like, don't 
But Greg, okay, first of all, you asked me like the hardest question. I, I know you're a movie buff. I've done some research. I know movies are your thing. You can't put me on the spot with this question. There's so many. I love every genre. Literally, sometimes I'm in the mood for horror, which is like my mom and I will just binge watch all the horror movies. Then I watch tons of comedies with my dad. Then I want thriller. Actually, like there's everything under the sun. What's your favorite movie? I need to know. For well, I, I, I love Vertigo. And then I guess you mentioned horror. Do you have a sp- yes. specific horror film that you, you, you and your mother, I, I guess, really love Please. together? Okay, I will give you mine. You got to give me yours. I we love love horror. Like we we go we go insane with this stuff. We have our movie nights, and it's just everywhere. Pick them all apart. But we 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 love particularly zombie movies. So we recently rewatched Twenty Eight Weeks Later. Uh, we watched All of Us Are Dead because we love Train to Busan. Um, I am a, we particularly love the vicious fast zombies. Not so much the slow ones, though that can be good if you're in the mood. But um, we just like we like to do a whole tasting party of different horror movies. So what what is yours? You know. I- I, I would have I would have to say probably Trade in Busan. It just you know, just I really love it. Just fast moving zombies and really enjoyed that as well. So and it can make you cry at the end. That was a surprise. I didn't see it coming. It hit me like the train itself. I was found myself getting emotional with the father daughter part. You know. <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I got really teary eyed with that. But after wife, like, uh, what should they? What should people see? Our listeners see after from your resume. What would you well, suggest? After watching and enjoying wife, like, and and letting it. Get, letting yourself get immersed into this really cool futuristic world. I think it'd be fun to, if after you watch that, take a little break, grab a snack and go see, um, you know what? Because I'm talking about mythology and fairy tales, watch Sacred Lies. That's a modernized Brothers Grimm fairy tale. And I'd like to get your opinion on it, Greg. Okay, Definitely. we'll connect on Instagram when I want your review. It's season one, uh, uh, Peacock TV, Blumhouse, Facebook Watch uh, series, and it's the modernization of the Handless Maiden. Um, and it's I play Minnow Bly, um, a girl who was raised in a cult. She's the Handless Maiden. Um, she has no. She's a double amputee, and she ends up in juvie. It's a really deep psychological mystery, and it explores similar themes to this film but in a totally different lens so i think it's a good balance watch wife like and then watch sacred lies as a to change it up thank you and i want to hear your opinion on it i yeah. will definitely give you my opinion on it i will connect with you on ig also very very quickly uh thank you so much for your time are you really fluent in mandarin or you can do conversational mandarin? <laughs> That means that's for you, Greg. It means your smile is sweet as honey. And um, I don't know where I know you from, but it's so familiar to me. Thank you so much for your time. You're awesome. And I really love the film and hope to connect with you soon. Oh, we'll have to meet in person at some point, Greg. Definitely. Lots of love. Thank you for your time.